Okay, we're doing the birth of Jesus part two, and this is the angelic announcement. The, the, an angel will appear to the shepherds and will announce the baby Jesus, and we have really an angel teaching the gospel. And I'll read uh, 1 to, tw one to uh, 11 or so. A one to, one to let's see, one to eighteen. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the words should be registered. <clears throat> the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph went also, also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there was in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. This is the beginning of our text, verse 8. <coughs> and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe, a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. <coughs> and suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. That's another reading of God's holy word. We're going to look at the angelic announcement today. <coughs> which is quite amazing. With verse 8, the scene shifts. From the birth of Jesus, which is very brief, to the special announcement of that birth. The first announcement of the birth of the Savior to the children of men is made by an angel from heaven. While the announcement of the birth of the firstborn son of a great monarch or emperor is made with much publicity, pomp, and fanfare, just think for England, for example. The birth of the Son of God is made privately in the middle of the night to simple shepherds. This, of course, is evidence that Jesus was born at night. Quite clear. <clears throat> and that this baby will be king like no other. And there are a number of things in this account that are interesting and noteworthy. First, the setting and the audience. The setting in the audience is something unexpected to the natural man. The angel appeared to shepherds who were abiding in the field near Bethlehem. 
who were keeping watch over their sheep during the night. God sent the angel to shepherds, not to kings, not to emperors, not to the political leaders, not to the religious leaders of Israel, not to the Sanhedrin, not to men of reputation who are full of pride and self-righteousness or wealth or power. So in God's ordering of things, the gospel message is first focused on the poor, insignificant, perhaps even those looked down upon. Now, why do I say that? Well, according to the Mishnah, to the Talmud, compiled, completed by the second century A.D., shepherds were regarded by the Jews as dishonest and unclean, according to the standards of the law. That's from Sanhedrin 25b. <clears throat> If the gospel message, in a sense, is focused on the poor and has uh, more results among the poor and insignificant, is indicated by Scripture. When Jesus preached at Nazareth, in Nazareth, he quoted Isaiah 61, 1-2, followed by Isaiah 58, 6. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is his first sermon, by the way. This is from Luke 4, 18-19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And in James 2.15 we read, Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Now this focus on the poor, the destitute, <clears throat> the oppressed, does not mean those who are simply poor financially and oppressed physically, but is inclusive of those who the Holy Spirit enables to recognize that they are poor spiritually and destitute needing salvation. We want to make that clear. Because the left-wingers today, your, uh, <clears throat> your left-wing lunatics in the Democratic Party, um, think there's something intrinsically good about being in poverty, and that's not what these passages are teaching. This observation is obvious in the Beatitudes where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3. <clears throat> and the full meaning of being truly poor is brought out in Isaiah 66, verse 2b. But on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, who trembles at my word. So you can be poor and you can be evil. Or you can be poor and you can be convicted by the Holy Spirit and have a contrite spirit. And know that you need Christ. In God's providence, not many, Paul says. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many not mighty, not many noble are called. And then he continues, the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, in order that no flesh should glory in his presence. So God picks shepherds. 
God is not a respecter of persons. He has not impressed one iota with, spirit, with material wealth or status or power. If one is not lazy but works an honest job yet is relatively poor, this humble material state does not mean that such a person does not necessarily lack a solid faith and does not mean that such a person is not favored by God. Okay, that's implied by the modern prosperity movement, the name it and claim it movement, your Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, and those heretics. That's all a lie. You can be poor and you can be righteous. One can hold a job considered by society to be undignified and low on the social scale and yet be a great person of faith, loved by God and saved by Christ. <clears throat> when Moses was called, he was watching sheep. Elijah was plowing a field. Gideon was threshing wheat. Jacob was a mama's boy dwelling in tents. David was so young and apparently insignificant, his father thought it impossible that God would consider him, that God would call him to be king over Israel. And he presents his sons one by one from the oldest to the youngest. And, and the prophet says, no, that's not the one, that's not the one, that's not. You've got to have somebody else. Well, yeah, I got this one. He's out watching the sheep right now. <laughs> Insignificant. The weak and insignificant of this world are often called before the mighty. It's a wonderful thing. So don't look down on the poor. Now, there are people who choose to be poor. They choose to be lazy. They choose to go on welfare and not work their way up. There are many people like that. And that's wickedness. So let's not make the mistake of saying that all the poor are virtuous when most are not. But there are poor Christians, there are many poor Christians throughout the world who are godly and are certainly loved by God. Now we're going to have a brief excursus. <clears throat> I call this an excursus on the church tradition of December 25th as the day of Jesus' birth. Does the fact that these shepherds were watching their sheep at night mean that it is not possible that our Lord was born in late December? While it is not completely impossible, it is unlikely. Under normal weather conditions, flocks were kept this way from April to November. And there are several scholars, I'm not going to note them, but there are several scholars who acknowledge this and uh, have studied this. Now, Bethlehem can have mild, sunny days. It's like, like Texas, one day, one day it'll be uh, 70 degrees, and the next day it'll be 30 degrees, and windy, and cold, and wet, or even freezing rain. Yes, it's possible that in late December, one can have mild, sunny days, but such days are not common. In addition, in the winter rainy season, many roads are impassable, and it would seem to be unlikely that the census would take place in the middle of winter, at such an inconvenient time. In, uh, you're probably not aware of this, but in World War II, in Russia, on the Russian front, <coughs> when winter ended and the roads, they didn't have paved, most of the, they didn't have paved roads throughout almost all of Russia, except in the cities. 
And so when the spring thaw came, the battles just stopped because you couldn't move anything. They would stop and wait for things to dry out. And we were reminded of Jesus' own words about the coming crisis of tribulation for Matthew 24, verse 20. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Because it's so hard. For, you know, we take for granted paved roads. But if you've ever been on a ranch or been out in the country, I used to motocross motorcycles way back. And uh, when you motocross after it's been raining and it's wet, and it's just a muddy muck. And it's certainly not good to travel. It is a biblical fact that God did not reveal to us in his infallible word the day or even the month or the exact year that Jesus was born. You know, we can say probably, you know, 6 B.C. to 4 B.C., right in there. It can't be too late because Herod was still alive. And you have to have time for them to flee down to Egypt and wait for Herod to die. <clears throat> And this truth is admitted by all commentators and scholars. I. Howard Marshall writes, quote, There is nothing in the narrative to indicate the time of year. And the celebration of Christmas in winter in the Northern Hemisphere finds no support here. Robert H. Stein says, quote, Shepherds were out in their fields with their flocks, usually during the months of March to November. Nothing in the two birth accounts ties Jesus' birth to any specific date. Leon Morris concurs. Quote, Luke says nothing about the actual date, and it remains quite unknown. Samuel J. Andrews <coughs> notes, and he spends, you know, his book is very detailed. He spends pages and pages. Quote, more probable is the supposition that there, that there, these dates, that is for the birth and nativity of Jesus, were in part selected as the times of Christian feasts in order to serve as a counterpose to the corresponding heathen festivals and in part because of their typical meaning. That's from his uh, great uh, life of our Lord upon the earth. William Hendrickson acknowledges, quote, that Jesus was born on December 25th can neither be proved or disproved. Now, why does he say that? Well, the Dutch followed the church calendar. The Dutch disobey the scriptures and make up a holy day that is not in the scriptures. In other words, they don't know. And then the great Lutheran scholar R.C.H. Linsky writes, quote, and they also celebrate Christmas, they follow the church calendar, while December 25th is only traditional and goes back to the celebration of the nativity of Rome on that date in the 4th century, it is at least traditional and goes back to the celebration of the nativity of Rome on that date in the 4th century. It is at least traditional and better than deductions that have no basis in church tradition and only assail the old traditional date without furnishing the inkling of a new one. End of quote. So, well, we don't know the date, but it's a, it's a church tradition. At least we have a church tradition here. John Gill. Quote, it is not likely that he was born as is commonly received at the latter end of December in the depth of winter, since at this time, Luke says, shepherds were out in the fields where they lodged all night watching their flocks. The first rain is in the month of Marshivan, which answers to the latter part of October and the former part of November. From hence it appears that Christ must be born before the middle of October, since the first rain was not yet come. And then Alfred Plummer 
writes, the data for determining the, the, de the time of year are so very insignificant, insufficient that after a minute calculation of them, all we are left in our we are all left in original uncertainty. Among those who have made a special study of the question, and we have advocates for almost every month of the year. The earliest attempts to fix the day, of which we have knowledge of, are those mentioned and apparently condemned as profane curiosity by Clement of Alexandria. In his time, some took April 21st, others April 22nd, others May 20th to be the day. What was unknown in this time is not likely to have been discovered afterwards respecting such a detail. December 25th cannot be traced higher than the 4th century, and it seems to have been adopted first in the West. We must be content to remain in ignorance as to the date of the birth of Christ. End of quote. G. Lambert, in the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, says this, Neither the term Christmas, a derivative of Christ plus Mass, nor the actual celebration of the anniversary of the birth of Christ is recorded in the Bible. Early Christians did, did meet regularly to commemorate the death, resurrection, and promised return of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, 20-34 The assimilation of such pagan practices generally represented efforts by Christians to transform or absorb otherwise pagan practices. The Feast of Saturnalia in early Rome, for example, was celebrated for seven days from the 17th to the 24th of December and was marked by a spirit of merriment, gift-giving to children, and other forms of entertainment. Gradually, early Christians replaced the pagan feast with a celebration of Christmas. But many of the traditions of this observance were assimilated and remain to this day as part of the observance of Christmas. End of quote. So that the adoption of Christmas as a yearly Christian holy day in the church's calendar came about as a result of syncretism with paganism. This is widely acknowledged by both Christian and secular scholars. People who are not even Christians acknowledge this. It's clear. It's quite obvious. Is Jesus Christ really honored by mixing pagan beliefs and practices with the celebration of his birth? which very likely is not even on the actual day he was born. Paganism, plus historical lies, plus Christian doctrine, is a poison mix indeed. And it's very dishonoring to Christ. Hey, let's just take your wife's birthday and let's celebrate it on Hitler's birthday instead. Would she like that? No. Well, Christ doesn't like it either. The universal admission that no one knows the month or day that Jesus was born raises some important questions. Number one, does the fact that it is remotely possible that Jesus may have been born on December 25th justify the widespread practice among churches and Christians of celebrating our Lord's birth on that day as some kind of special holy day? And the answer to this question is no, it most certainly does not. The Bible is clear with regard to biblical history and spiritual matters that we are not permitted to make up a practice or practice things without proof from Scripture. So in the spiritual realm, anything related to church practice, anything related to worship, we must have some kind of proof for a practice. The fact, some, the fact that something is a remote possibility 
does not authorize a religious practice. It's like saying, well, maybe the apostles, um, maybe they uh, wore purple outfits when they preached. It's possible. The Bible doesn't say they didn't. So let's go ahead and wear purple, make everybody wear purple outfits. See what I'm saying? It's just, you can't base something on a remote possibility that's very unlikely. This observation is established from the following biblical teachings. A. The word of God requires divine warrant for everything in religious matters regarding the elements or content of worship, even regarding what days are to be regarded as holy or religiously significant. And I'll just give you one passage. If you want to, I have a book on, against Christmas that I go into all this detail, but here, here we go. Here's one passage. Deuteronomy 4.2. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add unto it, nor take away from it. And then you want to read later. Deuteronomy 12, uh, oh, excuse me, that was Deuteronomy 12.32. And you want to read Deuteronomy 4.2. Genesis 4.3-5. Exodus 20.4-5. Leviticus 10.1-2. 2 Samuel 6, 3-4 and 6-7, 1 Chronicles 15, 13-15, Jeremiah 7, 31 and 19, 5, Matthew 15, 1-3 and 8-9, John 4, 19-24, Colossians 2, 8, 16, 20-23, etc. The Bible teaches us that if we are to celebrate or set apart a day each year regarding Jesus Christ, either in the church, family, or privately, we need A, Proof from Scripture of the actual day. In other words, we do not have the authority to simply make up a day or guess. You're not to make it up, you're not to guess. B, we need to have proof that God commands us to have a yearly festival or celebration of that day. Okay, we can't simply follow our own desires or popular human traditions. Jesus and the apostles refused to wash their hands before they ate. Why? Because it was a tradition required by the Pharisees. And Jesus told them, and they asked him, why, you, why aren't you guys washing your hands? It's a ritual washing. He says, we don't follow human traditions. We're not going to do that. That implies that men have an authority equal to the word of God, and men don't have that authority. Christmas satisfies neither of these requirements and therefore is forbidden by God. Now, the most common manner in which Reformed people attempt to circumvent this biblical principle called the regular principle or the Puritan principle of worship, and this, I was in the RPC for many, many years, and uh, they just simply say, well, it's a secular day. It's not a holy day. It's a secular day, like the 4th of July. Therefore, they want to place it in the realm of adiaphora or things indifferent. You know, like, should I plant beefsteak tomatoes or should I plant cherry tomatoes? By arguing this way, they can claim that the day is not religious and therefore does not fall under the regular principle of worship. Well, the problem with this argument is, is that it is both arbitrary and inconsistent with the biblical testimony, as we're going to see. The incarnation of the Son of God or birth of the Messiah, the Savior of the entire world, is most certainly not a secular event like the 4th of July or the Battle of the Alamo. To pretend that it is, is simply ludicrous. It's purely arbitrary. It's simply an excuse, and it's not even a good excuse. It's not a rational excuse. It's not a biblical excuse. 
It reveals that in our day, most of what is identified as Reformed or Presbyterian does not take the regulative principle of worship seriously at all. And that's true of the RPCNA. That's true of the OPC and the PCA. They don't take the regular principle seriously. And I was at a, uh, when I was in the RPCNA, I would have to visit uh, presbytery meetings of the OPC that met in Michigan. And I, I don't know what that presbytery is called, probably Midwest or something. Or, but anyway, I would go and somebody had written in a complaint. They dealt with a complaint. Why are we all celebrating Christmas? Why well, our churches have Christmas services? What's wrong? We're, we're reformed. We're not supposed to be doing that. And pre the presbytery dealt with that issue while I was there. And their answer was, well, you know, when you're preaching through the word of God, you just might happen to come to that text on December, near December 25th. Therefore, it's a circumstance of worship. But that's completely dishonest. Now, if you're preaching through Matthew or Luke or John or whatever, and you come to the birth of uh, or, or Mark, you, if you're preaching through, well, the two accounts are Mark and, and, and Luke, if you're preaching through those books in the normal course of events, and it happens to be near Christmas, that's one thing. But that's not what churches are doing that are Reformed. They're stopping what they're doing, and then they're having a Christmas service. Many of them are. Some are. Some don't. They just celebrate it in the home. And that's dishonest. The multitude of angels who descended from heaven to the fields of Bethlehem in order to celebrate the birth of Christ by praising, glorifying, honoring, and exalting God did not treat this event as secular or adiaphora at all. Or do we celebrate the Incarnation as a special or highly significant event in salvation history? And the answer is yes, absolutely. We certainly are to celebrate the birth of Christ. Yes, of course. But we are to do so as the scripture requires. We are to come together and celebrate the whole work of redemption on the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, as authorized by scripture. Anything else is will worship, Colossians 2, 20-23, and sinful. So, you know, oh, you don't believe in celebrating the birth of Christ. Oh, no, I do. But I, I, I believe in celebrating it every week, not once a year, which is not commanded in Scripture. We must keep in mind that the whole work of redemption is completed. It's completed now. We look back to and we worship the risen and exalted Redeemer who is at the right hand of God. Okay, For the shepherds, he was a baby in a little manger. But for us, he's at the right hand of God. His work of redemption is completed. As Paul says, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no, thus no longer. 2 Corinthians 5.16b it is not an accident that God chose the first day of the week, for, for example, 1 Corinthians 16.2, or the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10, the day of Christ's resurrection and victory to be the special holy day for the Christian church to celebrate the incarnation and the whole work of redemption. So, do we celebrate the birth of Christ? Yes, we do. Do we do it once a year in December, which is a date really, that comes from paganism? Doesn't come from the Bible? No, we celebrate it every week in accordance with the Bible, which teaches us to celebrate the whole work of redemption every single week. And if you want more details on that, you can go read my book on Christmas, where I go into all kinds of details on different arguments. And then B, 
the Bible teaches that faith in the word of God is to direct and rule over us in all matters of faith and ethics. Paul says that whatever is not of faith is sin. Romans 14.23 Biblical faith requires a proper, tangible, solid object of faith. Okay, we don't have faith in faith. We have faith in the word of God. We have faith in Christ as revealed in the word of God. <clears throat> that is, it must be founded upon the teaching of Scripture. Since we have no idea what month or day that Jesus was born, and since there are no commands or examples for a yearly religious festival or holy day, the celebration of Christmas is not an act of faith. And it is not honoring or pleasing to Christ or God. It is a humanistic holy day that pays homage to human tradition, wisdom, and authority. For this reason, it is loved by heathen, heretics, atheists, sodomites, and Romanists. You don't see sodomites and, and pagans going out, oh yeah, we need to keep the Sabbath. We need to make sure our families are in church every week. We need to make sure that we worship Christ and study the Bible every, week, every Sunday. No. But Christmas, they all love that. When men celebrate Christmas, they do that which God did not command, nor did it come into his heart. Jeremiah 7.31 If God didn't command it, and it didn't come into his heart, then he will not accept it. And if you don't agree with that, then you have no argument against the Roman Catholic Church having seven sacraments instead of the two that are in Scripture. And you have no argument about all the crazy additions in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Lutherans would say, well, obviously things that are clearly sinful we can't do. We're not to bow down to the Virgin Mary and idols in church. But they didn't take it far enough. It was the Reformed people who said, the Bible doesn't simply teach we're not allowed to commit gross sins while we worship God. That's, that's rather obvious. We're not allowed to make up our own stuff when we approach God. And that is clearly taught in Scripture all over the whole Bible, and it's logical. God is holy. You've got to approach him solely as he is, requires. And then C. Celebrating a made-up day or introducing a human fictitious element in Christ's life or salvation history is contrary to one of the fundamental principles of biblical Christianity. The Christian faith has a great advantage over all other philosophies, all other religious faiths in the world. Because one, it is true, it is true, they're false, <clears throat> it actually is actually true for it really came from God by divine revelation and it also truly came to pass concretely in human history there was no such person as Krishna who lived now Buddha was a real person he was somebody with a philosophy and he has no divine authority for anything he said and then you have people like Muhammad who was following, clearly following Satan Joseph Smith, simply making stuff up, following Satan. Charles Taze Russell, following Satan. The Bible is inerrant propositionally and historically. Everything it says about creation, Abraham, Moses, Christ, and the apostles, etc., really happened, just as recorded in Scripture. When professing Christians start making up things about the history of redemption because of their love of human traditions... 
They're unwittingly attacking the authority of Scripture and the foundation of the faith itself. That's why we don't make up stuff about Christ. We don't speculate about Christ. You know, there's the Gospel of Thomas. There's, a, there's these, these old accounts made up by heretics that talk about Jesus doing all these things when he was a child and performing miracles. No, those things are all a lie. We don't make stuff up. We have to hold the integrity of Scripture as authoritative and infallible. Now, the common objection to this point is this. Well, many people know that these traditions relating to Christmas were not, are not really true. So there's no point in making a big deal about it. Look, we are all just having a bit of fun. What's the big deal? It's a nice family day. Everybody gets together and has a lot of fun. Why are you making a big deal out of this? We know it's not true. We know that he wasn't probably wasn't born in December. We know that this, this came from uh, the church incorporating pagan elements. We, we know all of that. But who cares? We're having fun. Well, we are not denying that there may be a place for fables and fictitious stories for entertainment or artistic purposes. Poetry, a good novel, a good fictitious book. But we are not to make up fictions or fables about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this point is especially true regarding Christmas. For most professing Christians, Christian communions pretend it is true when it is not. And for this reason, commentaries and scholars insist that even though it is unlikely, they all want to say, yeah, but it's possible. And Eidersheim, who I have a lot of respect for, he's an incredible scholar, flat out says, yes, he was born December 25th, and you deny it, you're, you know, basically you're a fool. With no proof whatsoever. None. I think he was Episcopal. I think he started out Scottish Church, then went Episcopal. He was originally a Jew. <clears throat> the problem with such thinking is the Bible speaks of the assurance and the certainty of faith, not the remote possibility that something may be true. Biblical faith is bounded by the inspired and fallible word of God. It must not and cannot go one iota beyond what can be known or demonstrated by Scripture. Period. Sola Scriptura. You have to look at the implications of your practices. If your practice contradicts Sola Scriptura, and it contradicts the actual authority that elders and de uh, uh, pastors have, then you have a big problem. And then two, and we'll end with this and then we'll get back to the text. Should the fact that the celebration of Christmas and the choice of December 25th as the day of Jesus' birth among the Western churches, it's, I think it's January 6th for the Eastern churches, that is Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism or Episcopacy, Lutheranism, German and Dutch Reformed churches, Baptist and Evangelicals, etc. Does the fact that this is a long-standing tradition carry any weight or authority in our discussion of the priority, of the propriety of this practice? Because Hendrickson seems to say it does, and so does Linsky. Now, we expect Linsky. But even if you look at early Lutherans, they're very clever. Episcopalians, uh, if you read the 39 articles, they flat out say that the church has authority to make up stuff. If they think it's edifying, they have the authority. Lutherans are much more clever. Lutherans 
arbitrarily take anything that they add to worship that's not in the Bible, and they arbitrarily say, well, that's Adiaphora. And that's the argument of people like Joel Beakey and the Dutch Reformed churches. Well, it's Adiaphora. It's, it's a tradition, but it's Adiaphora. It's something indifferent. Well, in those churches, if you don't do it, you can't be a minister. If you don't do it, you can't be a church. If it's audio, that would be like a church saying, you have to have padded chairs in your church. If you don't have padded chairs in your church, you can't be one of our churches. That's truly audio offered. Do you want to have a wooden pew? Do you want to have a padded chair? Do you want to have a metal chair? Do you want to have a bench? Do you want to have a piece of wood? That's audio offer, obviously. It's a thing indifferent. But the birth of Christ is not something indifferent. And making up a holy day is not something indifferent. And the answer to this question is certainly is no, certainly not. It should not be used as an authority one iota, because according to Scripture, the church scroll is purely ministerial. Church officers, pastors, and ruling elders do not have any authority to make up doctrine, ethics, ecclesiastical government, as well as worship elements or practices. Their job is to teach whatever Jesus has commanded in the Bible, Matthew twenty eight twenty, as God says through Isaiah, Isaiah eight twenty, to the law and the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. In other words, and this is God. This is God speaking through Isaiah. When men come to you with human traditions that are not proven by the Bible, your job as a Christian is to say, I reject that. You need to repent. And if you have a Christmas service, I'm not going. And why would you be part of a communion that has a Christmas service and has people celebrating Christmas, which is sinful? And I know people say, well, everything's corrupt. It's been corrupt for a long time. We just have to accept that. I don't buy that. We don't accept sin. Somehow, because it's corporate sin and it's institutional sin, uh, that that should be acceptable to us. Why? Who says? It violates our covenants as Presbyterians. It violates our standards as Presbyterians. It violates the word of God very clearly. The idea that churchmen can simply make up stuff and then tell parishioners to submit to it is a Roman Catholic or Episcopal teaching. It has no place, no basis in Scripture at all. Moreover, it explicitly contradicts the regular principle of worship and the teaching of Jesus. Uh, when you get a chance, read Matthew 15, 1 to 9, I think it goes beyond that. In the parallel, there's a parallel. And Jesus is very clear. And he wasn't even talking about a holy day that people made up. He was talking about simply washing your hands. We're not going to do that. Because they made it a religious requirement. They made it something spiritual. It's not in the Bible. We're not doing it. Now that takes us to the, that's the end of the excursus. Now we go to the angelic announcement. Luke 2, 9 to 12. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. <coughs> you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. So as the shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks at night, now keep in mind, this is, you know, 6 to 4 BC, 
So nighttime, unless the moon's out, and unless it's a full moon, it's really, really dark outside. People don't have lights on. They're not sitting there with lights on playing the radio. <clears throat> All of a sudden, an angel of Yahweh is standing among them. And he wasn't floating up in the sky. The pictures he sees up in the sky, no. He was on the ground, standing with them. He was among them. The verb to appear means uh, literally to come up and stand by. With this appearance is the manifestation of the glory of the Lord. In the darkness of the night, a bright heavenly light illuminates all around the angel and all around the shepherds. The heavenly brightness can be a sign of the presence of God. For example, the Shekinah glory is compared to a consuming, uh, is called a consuming fire in Exodus 24, 17. Or it can be a reflection of Yahweh's glory in that the angels, uh, the angel has come from the throne room of God. And you remember Exodus 34, 30. <clears throat> Moses had spent some time up talking with God and he comes back and his face shone so brightly it scared the people. Aaron and the children of Israel were afraid to come near him, and they made him cover his face. That's just his face. Imagine the angel who spends all his time in the throne room of God, how bright he would be. The presence of this holy angel and the amazing brightness of the glory of God startles the shepherds and causes great fear. They had never seen such glorious, holy radiance. And thus, literally in the Greek, they feared with great fear. It's very emphatic. And you see, I, I could have looked it up, but there are all these accounts with angels. Now, sometimes angels appear just as regular men, like with Abraham and with Lot. But when angels appear as angels, what they really look like, uh, people usually fall down in fear, like dead men. Around them the night became brighter than the day. And they were so afraid that the angel tells them not to be afraid before he makes his announcement about Jesus. Literally, it's a present imperative. Stop being frightened. And this announcement contains a number of rich theological elements. First, there's the reason given why they do not need to be frightened. The angel hasn't come with news of judgment, but with good news. I bring you good news. Yuan Gerizomai. The expression good news or glad tidings is where we get the word gospel, evangel and evangelism. That's where the word comes from. The good news is the announcement of the coming of Christ and the salvation that he brings to the whole world. The whole earth has been living in sin, idolatry, guilt, and darkness for over 4,000 years, except for a little tiny nation of Israel who only has the gospel in types and shadows. With the birth of Jesus and his coming perfect redemption, this was all about to change radically and permanently. The foundation of salvation from sin, guilt, and death, and death in the complete sense, and the devil was now to come to pass. Men from every nation, tribe, and tongue would now have pardon of sins, a declaration of righteousness and peace with God. The whole world the, the idols would be ground to powder and cast aside as a true worship of God would spread throughout the whole planet Earth. The head of Satan was about to receive its death blow, Genesis 3.15. The Holy Spirit would soon be poured out from heaven upon all flesh. 
Acts 2, 1 to 21. The knowledge and love of Yahweh, that true and living God, would no longer be confined to the Jews. The true knowledge of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11, 9. The days of rank paganism as a universal religion among the Gentiles were numbered because the Son of God was now on earth, united to a human nature, lying in a manger. The stone cut without hands would soon strike the feet of iron and clay. Daniel 2, 34 and 35. The seed of David. The seed of David's kingdom will have a universal dominion and shall never be destroyed. Daniel 7, 14 to 15. Don't fear. I've got good news. Yeah, you're sinners, but I've got good news for you sinners. The Savior's come. He's born. He's here. He's right in Bethlehem, just a few miles away. Second, the angel says that the great joy of their announcement will be for all the people. The expression, all the people, verse 10, must be interpreted in light of verse 14's men of his good pleasure. This means the gospel is for the elect throughout the whole world. It's a universal dominion, a universal kingdom encompassing all people. Soon, this means that the gospel is for the elect. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might have might be saved. John three sixteen to seventeen. Everyone, regardless of race or nationality, sex, age, social status, tribe, tongue, language, who believes in Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in the scriptures, will be saved. For this reason, after the resurrection, Jesus commanded the apostles to disciple all the nations. Matthew 28, 19, Mark 16, 15. What an announcement, huh? The shepherds must, you know, this is a very great presentation of the gospel. And then third, the reason for the good news that brings great joy to all the people is given in verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In the Greek, the word born is near the beginning of the sentence for emphasis. Because born to this day. Now the Jews began the next day after the sun went down. So Jesus was born the very same night that this announcement comes. The very same night that the angel appeared, Jesus had just been born. And the statement would call to mind Isaiah 9, 6. Unto you a child is born, unto us a son is given. The passage implies the shepherds are true believers. A new day, a new age is dawned. A time of messianic salvation. The promise has been fulfilled. That to which the whole Old Testament pointed. And promised. Had pointed to in types, shadows, ceremonies, prophecies and promises. Has come. The shepherds must have been amazed and awestruck at these words. Now keep in mind. There had been no revelation. There had been no special revelation to the Jews for over 400 years. And they'd been under the power of the Greeks, and they had been under the power of the Romans. 
Following the announcement of the birth, the titles of the baby are given. The angelic message is clear, unmistakable, and powerful. The baby is the Savior. The previous statement about all people indicates that he is the Savior of the world. This is the first time Jesus is called Savior in the Gospels. And by the way, uh, the word Savior is used very sparingly. It's, it's used once in John, and it's, it's only used in Luke. Matthew and Mark do not use the word, and then it's used again in Acts. This title will be used by Luke regarding Christ again in Acts 5.31 and 13.23. Mary uses the title Savior to describe God in Luke 1.47. The title Savior was used of the judges who delivered Israel after the death of Joshua, the rise of serious declension, and the resulting oppression of Israel's caused by Israel's pagan neighbors. That's where it comes from. They were the original saviors. Here the word Savior is qualified by the titles Christ, Messiah, and Lord. So he is the Savior or Deliverer in a much more comprehensive sense. The judges could only save in a temporal sense if God was with them. They were only instruments of Yahweh who was the people's actual Savior. It was God's power. Jesus, however, is both God and man in one person, who in his person achieved a perfect salvation for his people. By his suffering and sacrificial death on the cross, he eliminated the guilt and penalty of sin. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. Your sin and guilt was imputed to him on the cross. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a cross. Excuse me, hangs on a tree. And then Colossians 2.14 Jesus, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it and out of the way and having nailed it to the cross. All your sin and guilt, past, present, and future, was removed by Christ when he died on the cross. In addition, he obeyed the law of God in exhaustive detail as the second Adam, fulfilling the covenant of works and thus earned eternal glorified life on behalf of the elect as church. Acts 4.12 Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10.9-10 If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. There's no such thing as a private Christian. You have to confess it before men. And then the angel continues by identifying the newborn as Christ the Lord. The word Christ is a Greek translation of the Hebrew or Aramaic word Messiah, meaning the anointed one. <clears throat> the Messiah was the royal figure promised throughout the Old Testament who would fulfill the eschatological hopes attached to the Davidic covenant. He would be a king anointed with the Holy Spirit in a unique manner who would save Israel and the whole world and would establish a kingdom that would spread throughout the entire earth that will by no means pass away. Israel at that time was looking for a carnal king, a political messiah, who through military force would drive out the Romans and make Israel a great independent kingdom. And that's one of the main reasons they rejected Christ. The messiah of scripture would establish a kingdom of grace and would conquer planet earth by the, Lord, by the word of God, the sword that comes out of the white horse rider's mouth, 
the gospel and the whole counsel of God in conjunction with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Messianic Savior was anointed beyond measure at the baptism of John in order to be his people's prophet, priest, and king. Our Lord was named Joshua, Greek, Jesus, which means Savior. And he had the title Christ, or Messiah. This title was so closely identified with Jesus of Nazareth that it soon became part of his name, Jesus Christ. Because it's really a title. He's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Although the title Lord, and that's Greek, Kyrios, in reference, in, in reference to Jesus can refer to his essential deity at times. In other words, it's the translation of the word Yahweh, and Mary uses the word Kyrios to describe Yahweh in chapter 1 of Luke. It usually is used for the Hebrew Adon, or Adonai, referring to the Lordship Jesus receives as the Messianic King, as the Messiah for fulfilling his redemptive work to perfection. For example, in Acts 2.36, Paul says, Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know, assuredly, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. This baby in the manger will be a fulfillment of the prophecies, such as Psalm 110.1. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adon, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And this, by the way, is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And, of course, prophecies such as Psalm chapter 2. And I, I ran out of time. We'll stop there. i got a little bit more to go, and then we're going to look at the the praise of Jesus by the heavenly host who descend to earth. So the pictures you've seen, you know, the paintings and stuff where the angels are all floating in the sky. No, they, they came down. They were with the shepherds praising God for sending Jesus into the world. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, in detail next week. But this is just amazing stuff. We don't need human traditions to add to this. It's, it's amazing as it is. You can't improve upon this. It's mind-boggling. These men received a really comprehensive uh, gospel message from the angel, from an angel. And, of course, they will respond with obedience and seek Christ out immediately. But we'll have to complete this next week, Lord willing. But, uh, boy, this is wonderful. And we, you know, if you want to get together and have a dinner with your family and exchange gifts. You don't need a pagan holy day to do that. You don't need some made-up thing that's dishonoring to Christ and God and the Bible that's a lie. You don't need to do that. You can do that anytime you want. Hey, let's get together and have a barbecue. Maybe play some baseball or something. We don't need to make up pagan holy days to do that. We don't need to follow lies to do that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that you did send your son into the world to save sinners. We thank you that he is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is Lord. You have declared him to be Lord because of, during the resurrection and ascension, due to his redemptive obedience. We thank you for that, Lord. We ask that you would continually fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we would understand your word, enlighten our minds to understand it, bend our hearts to obey it, 
that we would be covenant keepers, that we would be faithful to your dear Son. In Jesus' name, amen.